Hello, it's me, David Robertson. And it's me, Christopher Carter. And it's us, the Religious Studies Project. And despite what the world has been throwing at us, we are still here. Indeed. If you've been having trouble with our website, you were not the only one. It's been uh, quite stressful for a few weeks, but we've done it. All hail to Kyle Messick. Yes, indeed. Kyle Messick. All hail. <laughs> Kyle Messick, our web guy. We can't call him an editor for legal reasons, but he's our web guy. Very good he is too. This week, we have an interview that I've been waiting for for a few weeks. I'm going to tell you about it now because my colleague Chris here is the interviewer. And two well-known voices here at the RSP at the other end of the interviewing, and that's Brad Stoddart and Craig Martin. And they're discussing their new book, Stereotyping Religion, Critical Approaches to Pervasive Clichés. Let's hear about that. Religions are belief systems. Religions are intrinsically violent. Religion is bullshit. These are just some of the pervasive clichés that we might hear from time to time in the English-speaking world about our central topic of discussion on the RSP, religion. Joining me today um, to talk about um, a new book that's coming out called uh, Stereotyping Religion, Critiquing Clichés are the book's editors, uh, Brad Stoddard and Craig Martin, neither of whom should be strangers to the Religious Studies Project. But just to introduce them, Brad is an assistant professor of Religious Studies at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, completed his dissertation at Florida State University, and is currently revising his manuscript on Florida's faith-based correctional institutions. He teaches American religious history and the history of Christianity, and is primarily interested in religion and the law, religion in American prisons, and theory and method in the study of religion, and is currently serving as the president of our beneficent sponsors, the North American Association for the Study of Religion. And Craig Martin is an associate professor of religious studies at St. Thomas Aquinas College, and his research and teaching focuses on theoretical questions in the academic study of religion, typically related to discourse, ideology, and power. And some of his books include Masking Hegemony, A Genealogy of Liberalism, Religion, and the Private Sphere, Capitalizing Religion, Ideology and the Opiate of the Bourgeoisie, and A Critical Introduction to the Study of Religion. And he is currently the editor of a book series with Bloomsbury titled Critiquing Religion, Discourse, Culture and Power, in which this book, Stereotyping Religion, appears. So, um, Brad and Craig, uh, welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. Thanks so much. And I should say that we are conversing by the wonders of Skype. So maybe just uh, to set the scene here um, for me, um, if you want to tell me how did this book come to be? Why did it come to be? Uh, and, you know, what's the point here? Uh, Brad, can I build that one to begin with? I think you should. So the initial idea for this book project came to me when I was working on my dissertation at Syracuse University. I was thinking about all the stereotypes about religion that my students came into the class with and that I found frustrating to know how to deal with those, and not just students, but also like friends and family members who would repeat these cliches. And, and I was like, you know, I can't think of an obvious scholarly source to point them to to say, okay, in a nutshell, here's why scholars try to avoid this cliche. So I 
in through conversation with my friends Donovan Schaefer and Jeremy Vecchi. Schaefer's now at um he's either at Penn State or University of Pennsylvania. I can't remember which. <laughs> but yeah, I, I reached out to Donovan Schaefer and Jeremy Vecchi, and I was like, you know, I think that we could write this book really quickly and easily because we already know what we want to say about each of these stereotypes. And we produced three chapters, and I graduated and moved away, and the thing just kind of languished and was never never picked up and continued. So a couple of years ago, I was like, you know, that really was a good idea for a book. There should be something on cliches and stereotypes. So I reached out to Brad and said, hey, are you interested in helping me edit this? And, and he jumped on board. And then we ran with it. Wonderful. And it's it's really great when that sort of thing happens, when you get to revisit an idea that you had and, and no one else has stolen it. Yeah. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Across 10 years of it sitting, nobody nobody else stole the idea. And and I think that these, the stereotypes we chose are so pervasive that we, we didn't have any difficulty getting people to sign up for the, the project. Um, people were immediately like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Can I address this one or can I address that one? So, yeah, we were, we, uh, we were pleased with how quickly it came together and, and how great the reading authors were. On that note, um, so you, you say um, you, you find it quite easy to come up with the list of cliches. So did you present a ready-made list and then try and find contributors or did contributors come to you with cliches they particularly wanted to write about? And um, were there ones that you had wanted to include that you couldn't? Or? As I recall, Craig and I, when we when Craig approached me with the project, we sat down, you know, over the phone or email, of course, and went back and forth to create a list of about 10 cliches that we agreed on. And then we started looking, you know, we started looking for people to write about the individual cliches and in conversations with the individual authors, at least one or maybe two of the cliches change because the, you know, the author would say, well, that's good. Can I approach it from this angle? And of course, when it made sense, we gave the individual authors the freedom to, to run with the cliche. But the bulk of it, I think, came from a few conversations where Craig and I just identified these are the major cliches we see in, you know, society and politics. These are the major cliches we, uh, encounter in class and so we had this list of cliches and uh it just changed a little bit but for the most part we ran with our list fantastic i'll I'll ask you in a moment to take me through a few of them but um in the introduction you you set out the context for the book but also the context in, in which the cliches are operating so you talk about um, liberal political theory idealized protestantism secularization theory and so on maybe um you could just for the listeners um lay out um the context that we're talking about in which these stereotypes are um are operating i think a lot of that that stuff in the intro was from me um because when i when, when we were you know finishing edits to the various chapters and i was reading through them and thinking about you know would my students be able to follow these or not because we wanted this to be accessible at, at an undergraduate level. And I realized that a common theme that went throughout a majority of the chapters, those three things that you mentioned, the discourse, of, like liberal political discourses on religion as a private matter, the discourses on secularism and the discourses on new atheism, these didn't pop up in every single chapter, but in a majority of ones. So I was like, you know, I feel like we should give some background to the consistent themes that are going to pop up uh, as as the reader moves through. 
book. So that's why I chose those in particular because I thought that they would, um, yeah, help the readers understand the chapters. I think the only, the only things that I would add to it, I think you also mentioned, or we also mentioned in that section, anti-Catholic propaganda or anti-Catholic Protestant propaganda about, you know, religion being a private matter or some of the other cliches that uh, they have a, a Protestant bias built into them. And of course, the colonial context, those were two other factors that we saw as common themes in the history of the general cliches. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Fantastic. So I'm wary of, of asking you to, to pull out favorites or anything, uh, because we'll not have time to get through every cliche, but perhaps um, we could take us through one or two of them and just um, show us some of the analysis in action. Do you have any ones you want to pull out, Craig? Um, I'll wait till after you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like that. <laughs> Stephen Ramey's has a soft spot, uh, or I have a soft spot for Stephen Ramey's piece. Stephen Ramey writes about religions being mutually exclusive, and I think Stephen's was the first, the, re- the reason I have a soft spot for it, I think it was the first one that we that that came back to us. Uh, he was the first to submit it. That is, and I read it and I thought this is exactly how, how I want it, how I want this book to look. So Stephen Ramey addresses the cliche that religions are mutually exclusive, and so he introduces the chapter. I think with the opening sentence, you know, uh, what is your religion? Check one box, and yep. this is something that all uh, undergraduates have seen in some version, right? What is your religion, right? They, uh, they get it here at McDaniel. They have to check or they have the option to check that box when they apply for admission. So I know they've at least seen it once, but probably many times before. So he introduces the cliche in the introduction. He talks that he talks about how this is not uh, this cliche that religions are mutually exclusive is not just you know, academic navel gazing, that there are real political and legal implications and he addresses some of the legal and political implications. And as he continues in the chapter, he talks about places where you encounter this, you know, this cliche, where do we see it? We see it in popular culture. We see it in politics. We see it in law. He doesn't mention this, but for example, in the work I do in prisons, when you're an inmate in America, you you check which religion are you, mm. you get to check one. In Florida, where I did my the bulk of my research, you can only change it once. You can only change your religion once every six months, and it dictates where you can move about in the prison, which groups can you attend, which study groups, which religious services. So, wow. you know, Stephen doesn't address that part, but these are some of the examples. The or Stephen mentions different type of examples like this, where you know, this idea that religions are mutually exclusive it, it does have political and legal implications. So then he moves in and he talks about the development, the historical development of the cliche, talking about, of course, the European context in which the cliche emerged. He talks about the colonial context. I believe he mentions uh, the Protestant Reformation. He talks about places like India, where the distinction between Buddhism and Hinduism is not as rigid as we would imply, or some other Asian countries where Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, uh, or even Shinto, right? These alleged so-called separate religions, mm. the, what we, the boundaries are just so much more malleable. So long story short, by the time you read Stephen's chapter, uh, you get the history of the cliche, you get the political work that it does, and you realize the 
areas of the world where uh, that cliche becomes quite problematic. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. And, and it's worth noting here that the book isn't attempting to, to sort of... Uh, put something in the place of these cliches because the the opposite for example of uh religions being mutually exclusive would be that i guess re- religions are are all uh one and the same or, or which is another one that is is dealt with in the book you're you're not so much um asking these authors to say this is wrong and this is right you're rather pointing out um that cliches in and of themselves uh, never tell the full picture and are always doing ideological work that's yeah, true we make we highlight that in the introduction where we make a point of saying uh, we want to make it clear not to replace these old cliches with new generalizations about religion or better generalizations about religion instead we're, we're trying to we're suggesting to the students or to the readers that any cliche about religion or any generalizing statement can similarly be interrogated historicized etc Fantastic. Craig, you've had a long time to think there about uh, <laughs> which you're going to pick out. Well, so I decided I can't pick one. I, um, I think, I mean, there, there are so many good chapters in here, in, yeah. in my opinion. You'll never hear the end of it if you pick, you know, whoever you pick. Uh, well, okay. So I'll, I'll leave my answer say, then. Leave my answer. No. <laughs> so I think that um, I really enjoyed Tenzin's chapter on how learning about religion leads to tolerance in part because he did a bunch of research into Ninian Smart's work that yes. um, I didn't I didn't have a lot of prior familiarity with so I actually learned a lot about Ninian Smart by by reading his chapter in you know Ninian Smart re- reproduces this stereotype that if you learn about religion or if we teach about religion in public schools or or in colleges, then people will be more tolerant and accepting and forgiving of one another. And, and one of the things that I thought was really important about the book is that we needed to address how these stereotypes appear not only in popular culture, but also in scholarly literature. And um, Tenzin just did a fantastic job of showing how, you know, even a sophisticated scholar like Ninian Smart reproduces some pretty um, blatant stereotypes. I really thought he nailed Penny and Smart. That's probably why I liked it so much. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, when I was reading it, I did highlight like three or four pages and say, you know, come back to the next time I have to teach about Ninian and Smart. So I had a chance to teach in my Intro to Religious Studies class. I, we, we, I taught this book last semester, and literally the day, so this was a nine o'clock in the morning class, and we addressed Tenzin's chapter on that, you know, re- education about religion re- leads to tolerance, and then. Literally a couple hours later, one of my students who was in that class 
went to one of her other classes where they had a guest lecturer talk the guest lecturer who showed up to talk about how religious or education about different religions leads to tolerance. <laughs> and so the student, you know, came back to me uh, office hours the next day and said, you know, professor, it was arguing with this presenter in my head and, and I'm pretty sure I won the argument, <laughs> you know, based on, based on what we had learned in class earlier that day. Uh, so it was fun to see, you know, we, we addressed this, this cliche and then two hours later, literally she encounters the cliche in a classroom. Fun. Fantastic. And and we'll talk hopefully before we finish about that experiment of using it in the classroom. But um you you've touched on there, so you know, learning about religions leads to tolerance. Is you know, that that sounds like a you know, quite a positive cliche in one of the chapters, uh, I think it was Matt Sheedy's on uh, on religion being violent, he, he brought up Karen Armstrong and others insisting that uh, you know, proper religion is peaceful. And you know, religion is a peaceful, nice thing. Is there a, is there a danger that by uh, critiquing uh, positive cliches, we're we're doing um, doing society a disservice, or or is there such a thing as a positive cliche? I want to answer this by pointing to what I think is an excellent, excellent book on phenomenology of religion. Tim Murphy's The Politics of Spirit, and in that book, Murphy looks at the history of phenomenology, a lot of which puts a positive spin on religion, that religion is getting in touch with the transcendent, religion, yeah, is a source of happiness, etc. Phenomenology religion tends to think positively about religion. But what Tim Murphy does is shows that each one of those phenomenologists use their rhetorical framework to rank religions and to denigrate some in relationship to others. Mm. So that someone, someone like Rudolf Otto says, you know, religion is getting in touch with the transcendent and that, you know, Christianity most beautifully gets us in touch with the transcendent. But of course, Islam doesn't do so well and primitive religion is terrible at it. So I think that even the positive cliches, like Karen Armstrong, she also has a ranking system built into her framework so that the things that she likes, she call authentic religion, and the things that she doesn't like, she can dismiss as inauthentic religion or political religion, or maybe for her political religion isn't even religion. So perhaps it's okay to bomb the ship of the Middle East because they're not good religious people, they're bad religious people. So I think that even the, the positive cliches have the potential to be used in that kind of ranking system where people can favor one and dismiss others. And that can all lead to what I consider negative political effects. Absolutely. And indeed, um, Leslie Durris-Smith writes in the book about um, the idea of, of religion being about transcendence. And I pulled out this quote where she says that that cliche can simultaneously normalize the existence of the supernatural, identify an enemy, justify a political cause, amplify the seriousness of one's position, and unite a group of people under the banner of their own moral worth. And and that's you know, not even a complete list. And and so in that, um, you, you hear, oh, religion's just about the transcendent, the supernatural, the ineffable, and it doesn't sound harmful, but when you look at how it is deployed, it's doing real ideological work. Let's talk about the classroom setting then. So I, as I was saying earlier to you, 
this is certainly going to be a very useful resource when I'm coming to teaching, not only about Ninian Smart, but anytime um, you, you, want, you casually mention these cliches, it's going to be fantastic to just pick up the book and find examples. So I, I can see it being a really useful teaching uh, resource in that respect. But Brad, you, you used it in the classroom then. So how did that go down? Yes, I used this book in my Intro to Religious Studies class where we look at, we start by reviewing the so-called canon of important or influential religious studies scholars, and then we supplement it with people who have, uh, you know, who are omitted from the so-called canon. And then at the end, and the benefit of that is that the students got a wide survey of, you know, theories about religions, approaches to religions, methods, methodologies, etc., and then we ended the semester by reading and discussing stereotyping religion, critiquing cliches. And since it was the first time I taught from the book, I organized it as this. We had three, we meet three days a week, and I asked groups of students to present for a half hour. And so you had two or three students each presenting a chapter. And I then they, you know, presented for about 20 minutes and then would open up for Q&A for about 10 minutes or so. And then I had some closing comments at the end of the end of the class. Hmm. The benefit of that is that I, I wanted to see what this, or what I liked about it is that it allowed me to see what the students took from the book and what I thought they omitted. And it led to some really good discussions because the students thought, you know, or the students said, you know, yes, some of the cliches that we've identified, but I, I, I embraced them pretty much the entire class. And so to have someone call them out and point out the history and point out the uh, problems with it. It, uh, it it did a lot of work in the classroom and it helped the students because it overturned some things that uh, they had just taken for granted. And we actually, at the last day of class, we discussed the entire book and the students tended to agree. Now, obviously, they knew that I was one of the editors, so they weren't going to say too many. Harsh, <laughs> uh, they weren't going to criticize it too much. But they thought that it was nice to end the semester by addressing these cliches, you know, for the simple fact that it uh, changed the way they were thinking about uh, or the way they had thought about religion, their young adult life. Not to over romanticize it, right? Oh, no. Um, but they, they did find value in it. Excellent. I can totally see myself uh, the next time I'm marking a pile of essays um, and you, you see these uh, cliches coming up all the time. It, one that's not in the book it, it, is... Religion has been around since the beginning of time. You know, they'll sort of begin with that. Um, but the, plenty of other ones come up, and I can imagine immediately just copying in a a, a URL to the the chapter on the um, library website for any of these, um, rather than having to spend my own time deconstructing it. Just say, <laughs> read that chapter, and then come back That's and write it one. again. Right. Take note. We, we should include that in the next edition if there is one. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Or too. Yeah. Well, if there's another one, uh, um, um, uh, religion is a choice. That's all. You know, you always hear that. Yeah. People choose to believe or choose to have a certain religion. So yeah, I, I'm already filling up <laughs> the next volume. I, I guess an obvious question that that would come up on the RSP quite often is is why why religion here? Um. Obviously, we this is our area of interest. We teach courses in these. Could you do a similar book for, say, stereotyping sports or stereotyping gender? Or, um, you know, is religion particularly problematic? And I hope other people do. <laughs> <laughs> I have a more substantive response to that question. I think that, I think that um, yeah, obviously you could write 
such a book about any subject matter here. Um, stereotyping politics, stereotyping gender, stereotyping race. What I think might set religious studies apart is the fact that post-structuralism reached religious studies 20 years later than it hit all those other fields. And the popularization of post-structuralist approaches is lagging. That they, I don't know, apart from maybe Mallory Nye's intro book and Russell McCutcheon's new book, I don't know any introductory material in religious studies that actually comes from a critical, somewhat post-structuralist perspective. And I'm pretty sure that people in English have been teaching post-structuralism to undergrads since the 80s. So it's a time that we went ahead and picked up our slack, tried to catch up by having some undergraduate literature present. I mean, it's not like post-structuralism is that new. It's 50 years old now. Um, Our our introductory textbooks still tend to ignore those types of uh, critical yeah, so um, yeah, there are disciplinary reasons why um, why such a book may not be written necessarily in other fields, and then also, like it or not, um, religion, the this constructed political category, is something that has a lot of power in in the the modern Western world. Um, to write a book called I don't know, stereotyping golf or stereotyping stamp collecting might be interesting stereotypes about stamp collecting probably aren't quite as pervasive or potentially harmful as um these cliches about religion every time i say religion it's in scare quotes Um, (laughs) but we all know that we are coming up on about 25 minutes here so i'll be wanting to wrap up fairly soon and and i'm going to close the interview with uh, rebecca king's close to to the book but i just wondered if there's anything more on this topic of uh, prevalent stereotypes of about religion that you would like to say that you'd hoped you were going to say i i think i would just want to say thanks to donovan schaefer and jeremy vecchi for working with me on this project in the ancient past and thanks to brad for joining the project when i decided to resurrect it and um also thanks to lao persquav at at, uh, bloomsbury publishing for showing some interest in the idea and um, taking me up on the offer absolutely it's brilliant to see the sort of critical religion approach um applied in this sense um sort of applied systematically um to a variety of uh, cliches that you know when, when i was reading it myself I, I was doing a lot of well yes yes that makes sense that makes sense but there were a lot of things like thoughts that i'd had but never actually put down on paper and lots of interesting examples and plenty that i didn't that i never thought of before and i can see it being really useful both for students and to point students to and potentially to do the sort of thing that um, Brad did um, actually sort of structuring some teaching around it. So do check out the book, listeners, called Stereotyping Religion, Critiquing Clichés, edited by Brad Stoddard and Craig Martin. Came out in paperback immediately, so it's nice and it's not a typical academic book price, um, so you can get your hands on it quite easily, hopefully. And you can find the full list of all the uh, stereotypes and clichés. We'll put them on the page with this podcast. I just wanted to end, uh, so Rebecca King's chapters on uh, religion is bullshit, (laughs) and she begins by talking about how even the desire to correct uh, the statement, religion is bullshit, is in itself bullshit, and (laughs) she closes the book with the, the following words, 
which I thought would be a nice way to end the episode. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether or not religion is bullshit. The term is an empty signifier. What matters is your ability to weigh evidence, locate sources, and pay critical attention to both your scholarly process and product. You may find yourself mired in shit, but at least you'll be in good company. And I hope you've been in good company today. Thanks so much, Craig and Brad. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks for that, Chris. Um, Excellent. It's a really good book. And, uh, you know, they're both great value guests as well absolutely and i'll I'll not uh, name specific chapters here but um, there was a, a fun anecdote um after the microphone was turned off about so you know you've got lots of chapters in that book that are in fact the title of the chapter is the cliche so uh, in a number of cases you know when you've been at an institution and the like alumni magazine or whatever is uh, publishing you know lists of what the faculty have been writing um the the, the the chapter titles have been somewhat problematic for some of the contributors um in their various alumni magazines but i'll i'll, I'll leave you to take that out with the editors if you want to find out specific <laughs> it was quite amusing yeah i was just thinking about the alumni magazine here in edinburgh you know and uh religion and science are incompatible those kind of cliches there's room for a second volume i think here definitely is um yeah so we've got we've got a few bits of news actually to catch up on haven't we yeah um the the one that i will um push uh, for well first of all we've already mentioned the the website so we, we're just crossing all all of the various appendages that uh the stability is going to be there and then over the summer we can get a nice nice redevelopment that we've been talking about for so long but the other thing is um we've had a bit of a another innovation in our, our video production um jonathan tuckett uh, was at the ou's um, contemporary religion and historical perspective conference with david uh, that david organized indeed and um produced a very interesting uh, video diary i've only seen the first part of it now maybe you have listeners it's called religion and its publics part one i'm just going around the conference and asking a variety of people uh, the same question and, and seeing where they went with it and they edit it together quite well i'm looking forward to part two do you have any more comments on that <laughs> only that it's been something we've been playing with uh, for a while and it took a while to get the technology right um but jonathan's uh, doing a great job in the video at the moment and on the uh, responses at the moment so you know we're continuing to diversify and bring more video that was something that we um, very much wanted to do we're also we have um an interview with patina schmidt coming up uh, which we recorded in video format this time as well, which at the same conference. Uh, so, you know, I, I hope that people are getting something out of the video content. It's a, it's a bit different. Uh, certainly these little uh, videos are much more, you know, they're aimed at social media and YouTube and things rather than the full-length interviews, mm. which, uh, you know, a slightly different format. But, you know, it's all part of uh, it's all part of what we do. Absolutely. So we're really grateful to Jonathan and to David and to everyone for all the work. On that, and everyone who contributed. Um, so next week, um, another um, Tom White is becoming quite pro- prolific for us at the moment um, in uh, Dunedin. Um, so Tom White's been speaking with uh, Professor Joseph Bulbulia on what he calls a situating religion within justice. Interesting. Yes, that'll pick up on some of the themes from certainly 
uh, Chris Duncan's interview with Winifred Sullivan on religion and the law. And we've had a, we've had a few other ones. We had uh, Tommy did an interview about religion in uh, Brazilian prisons, I think. That's and, right, yeah. yeah. And I am currently putting together a special issue of implicit religion on um, interdisciplinary approaches to religion and law. So bringing in some law scholars mm-hmm. who are um, their you know, the reflections on their side of that. And Suzanne Owen's going to be writing in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, true. Yeah, but yeah, and she we we had her in, interview on uh, druidry and the legal definition of religion. Yeah, and um, she spoke about that a few weeks ago as well in our BASR panel. And then um, you also interviewed Susan Palmer about um, new religious movements in the law. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. So, but this justice thrust will be be quite good, indeed. Yeah. So I'll come back next week for that. Come back. Later this week for the Ops Digest and the responses. And uh, we'll see you back here next Monday. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.